We simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And what we're talking about in this episode is identity theft as it relates to immigration. This is a big issue. There has been writing about it, some research, government reports, but it really doesn't get the level of attention I think it deserves because even though everybody agrees identity theft is bad, there are horror stories about it all the time, to the extent that it interacts with illegal immigration, the legacy media and the powers that be would rather not draw too much attention to it because illegal aliens are a kind of protected class, in effect, and shouldn't be criticized. So there was a report, a long piece written by Real Clear Investigations, which is part of the Real Clear Politics group of organizations, co-authored by Mark Hemingway and Ben Weingarten, specifically on this issue. The title of it, and we'll have a link in the show notes, is Willful Blindness, Feds Ignore Illegal Alien ID Theft Plaguing Americans as U.S. Coffers Fill. And to talk about the article and this piece in general, we have with us one of the authors, Ben Weingarten. Ben, thanks for joining Parsing Immigration Policy today. And if you could just tell the listeners first a little bit about who you are and then tell us a little bit about this article. Mark, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity and all the work that you all do. I am the deputy editor at Real Clear Investigations, where I'm responsible for both some of our special research projects, like, for example, our January 6th versus 2020 summer riot database, which we've put out and which got a substantial amount of coverage, as well as some other writings under my own byline. This piece and a piece as well on kind of the backlash against what's been termed woke capital. And then I do some regular editing work at Real Clear. And then beyond that part of the profile, under my own byline, I am a senior contributor to The Federalist and a columnist at Newsweek, a fellow at the Claremont Institute. And my writing largely focuses on national security and foreign policy, as well as what I've termed the war on wrong think that we've been seeing in America with the politicization and weaponization of the national security, intelligence, and law enforcement apparatuses, in my view, against those who dissent from kind of the prevailing orthodoxy in Washington. And, and this piece on illegal alien identity fraud, I, I do think, does touch directly on the national security and foreign policy side of the portfolio, almost definitionally because you would not have this illegal alien identity fraud in this country were we not to have this massive rush of illegal aliens into America in the first place. So I think it nicely touches on kind of 
a couple of threads that run through my writings, all of which can be found at winegarden.substack.com. And the jumping off point for the article was something the Social Security Administration keeps track of, and they call it the earnings suspense file. It's not a bank account or a lockbox. There's no money there. It just keeps track of the earnings that were reported to Social Security, but that there were problems. It was a fake number or it was a duplicate thing or some kind of problems. And so if you could maybe just briefly tell us what the earnings suspense file is and has it grown since illegal immigration has expanded, that kind of thing. Yeah, this is something that's very arcane, and even many congressional offices themselves only may have passing familiarity with it. So I wouldn't expect Americans writ large to be familiar with this. But this earnings suspense file, to your point, is a ledger. It's an accounting book, which captures each year, and of course the number is almost definitionally growing, mismatched tax payments. And when I say mismatched, I mean someone submits their W-2 earnings forms and they use, for example, a name or a social security number that does not match the name or social security number that would be on file with the Social Security Administration. So every year the IRS collects these documents, but they run them by the Social Security Administration essentially to confirm that the information is matching. And when there is a mismatch, like, for example, someone changed their name, but they didn't indicate it in their records that would be on hand with the Social Security Administration, there would be a mismatch in terms of the tax payments associated with their Social Security number. And historically, really for decades, these so-called uncredited earnings were recorded here in relatively not large numbers. So between 1950 and 1980, and the ESF, the earnings suspense file, was established in the late 1930s, there were around 30 plus billion dollars in uncredited earnings in that file. Which when you figure over 30 years, isn't really that much money. No. And of course, some of it each year was reconciled and fixed. Because there are legitimate reasons this could happen. Say a woman got married, Forgot to tell Social Security that she changed her name, that kind of thing, right? Sure. Forgot to tell Social Security you changed your name, transposed a couple of digits. Uh, I mean, those clerical errors, certainly all potential reasons for it. But in the grand scheme of things, that $33 billion is a relatively modest number there. Right. Now, fast forward, we get to the dawn of the millennium, and that number has exploded to around $190 billion. And that tracks almost perfectly, particularly with an explosion during the 1980s and 90s, with the massive increase in illegal immigration into this country, plus the passage of a piece of legislation that was supposed to combat illegal aliens potentially being in the workforce, which was, of course, the immigration reform legislation passed under President Reagan. And what the Immigration Reform and Control Act did was it required those seeking employment to fill out I-9 forms, attesting to their citizenship or work-authorized immigrant status. But instead of having the effect of deterring illegal aliens from entering the workforce on the books or off the books, it actually had the effect of incentivizing them to fudge their numbers to prove their citizenship status so that they could work. 
And so consequently, fast forwarding from the year 2000 to around today, the number in the earnings suspense file went up tenfold. So from around $190 billion in the year 2000 to $1.9 trillion in 2021. And that number in part, though not in total, is a proxy for the explosion in the illegal alien population in the U.S., and a large percentage of which has entered the workforce on the books, filing their W-2s with Social Security numbers that are not their own. Right. And um, one of the issues that relates to this is what the Social Security Administration calls no-match letters. So when your W-2 form has this stolen or fake or borrowed so-called Social Security number on it, But your tax return, if you file a tax return, and a lot of illegals do, as you point out in the piece, has a, you didn't explore this too much, but has what's called an individual tax ID number, which is a real number issued by Social Security for people who don't have Social Security numbers, usually foreigners who have to pay taxes. Like you live abroad, but you have a bank account here. So anyway, the point is you submit your tax return and the numbers don't match. The W-2 has one number, the tax return has a different number. And so there's a no-match process that Social Security goes through. You talk about that no-match process a little bit. You could tell us a little bit about what goes on there. Yeah, it's an important point. The Social Security Administration itself lacks enforcement authority in terms of these potential discrepancies that might exist in a person's identification numbers. And so consequently, what they've engaged in in the past was something of a passive way of alerting employers to the fact that there were those working in their organizations who submitted these records that this did not match. And those were known as colloquially as no-match letters. The George W. Bush administration did issue no-match letters. The Obama administration halted that process. The Trump administration fought to reinstitute that process and was able to and delivered 1.6 million such notices to employers between 2019 and 2020. But of course, those notices themselves did not say that employers had liability, that employers had an obligation to then pursue their employees who might be working unlawfully and engaging in one or multiple forms of fraud. It essentially was just to tip them off to that fact. The Biden administration has, again, discontinued that practice. So even the most, I would characterize it as passive sort of means of at least alerting employers to the fact that the government was aware that there were those in their employ who might be working fraudulently, even that process has been essentially halted under two of three administrations. And I think that's illustrative of the broader issue at play here, which is that government agencies not only know that there is a substantial amount of identity fraud going on in the workplace, but they want to turn the other way on it. They believe they have an incentive to turn the other way on it. And that's leaving aside the ideological devotion to the notion of having open borders and encouraging and increasingly multicultural sort of society and system that, as they've argued, in some cases, very overtly, this is a boon to the federal coffers. 
If you have these illegal aliens who are working on the books, paying their taxes, federal officials, certainly in the IRS, and as well in Congress, like, for example, the leading progressive in the House, Pramila Jayapal, they are overt in saying it is a good thing that illegal aliens are paying taxes on the books. Why would we want to upset this apple cart? Of course, ignoring the other side of the equation, which are all of the costs, not only, of course, to the individuals whose ideas may have been stolen in this process and may be bearing the brunt of their ideas having been stolen, of course, the degradation of the rule of law associated with this whole scheme. But beyond that, of course, the costs associated with illegal aliens in the U.S. are ignored in looking at the several billion dollars that flow into federal and state coffers every year as a consequence of illegal aliens working on the books. And often that is an argument for why illegal immigration is good. In other words, they're paying taxes to Social Security and Medicare especially, but they're not going to be collecting on Social Security because they're illegal aliens. But these are people who then argue for amnestying the illegal immigrants, at which point they would be collecting. And so it kind of undermines the whole argument. In other words, only if you have, I guess, what you could describe as a a kind of libertarian argument where you want illegal immigration to continue and you want the people to stay illegal so that a substantial share of them actually working on the books will pay taxes, but never be allowed to collect it. It's just, I don't know, it just seems morally dubious. It's not that if you pay taxes, you get to stay or whatever, but the argument seems to be that the illegal immigrants pay taxes, aren't going to collect Social Security, so let's have more of that. And that's just appalling, it seems to me, and not sustainable. And to add to that, one of the things that we found in researching this piece is that many proponents of illegal aliens working in the country indicate that essentially illegal aliens are engaging in fraud in a good faith effort to pay taxes so that consequently in an amnesty, the payment of those taxes, again, potentially using someone else's social security number a stolen one, a fraudulent one, or borrowing, quote unquote, someone else's, that that is an indicator that they will be a good citizen because they're paying taxes, <laughs> ignoring the fraud part of it. Right. Yeah. And so it's not only that there may be a future amnesty that they will benefit from, but this fraud is part of the effort to ultimately get that amnesty. Right. Right. So it's kind of a, a remarkable scenario. And then, you know, again, and this is something that you all have done an excellent job exploring something I've referred to in my own writing in the past. There are myriad ways in which there are consequences for American citizens and ways that they are even really disenfranchised as a consequence of the massive illegal alien flows into the country, which is even in when it comes to the census, when it comes to apportionment of congressional seats, which is rooted in population in a place, but not citizenship, right. you essentially have foreign interference in American elections in those districts whose populations are artificially inflated by non-citizens, yet get a representative or multiple representatives as a consequence of their non-American citizen population, and then also are allocated hundreds of billions of dollars each year based upon the apportionment of those districts. So the knock-on effects are just so broad here that it's myopic and I think intellectually dishonest to simply limit the formula to 
more illegal aliens means a more booming economy and more tax revenues for the federal trust. It just doesn't present nearly a full picture of it. And I think that's something that we capture in this piece, although we don't argue it one way or the other. We try to present it in an objective fashion and let readers assess, you know, kind of what the right takeaways are. And one of the more focused kind of direct personal effects you did talk about in the piece was people who had their identities stolen by illegal immigrants and what consequences they suffered. And there was a guy whose ID numbers were stolen by an illegal alien criminal who was, had to register as a sex offender, and he had all kinds of problems stemming from this. And the interesting point was not just that American citizens suffer from identity theft, and it could happen to anybody, but since most illegal immigrants, not all, but most are Latin American, Hispanic American citizens are the ones more likely to suffer from this kind of identity theft. Because if you're an illegal alien stealing an identity or you're a criminal who deals in stolen identities, you would rather have the identity of someone with a Hispanic name to sell to a Hispanic illegal immigrant. It just makes it more plausible. I mean, you could always steal the identity, and this happens, of somebody with an Armenian or a Jewish or a Chinese last name. And that happens, but it's not as plausible if there's a Guatemalan illegal alien who wants a fake identity. It's just a lot more plausible to sell him one you have stolen from an American of Hispanic background. So it seems to me there's a message there that can resonate to Hispanic voters that this is to protect you more even than to protect other of your fellow Americans. It's a great point, and I think that probably sort of falls under the broader opposition to illegal alien immigration as well as mass amnesty among Latino voters who are American citizens. Right. I think it sticks in their craw that you follow the law and then you see others jump the line and cheat and essentially engage in an attack on the sovereignty and the laws of the country as a very first step in setting foot on that country. And to your point, these stories, some of which we cover, and interestingly, as I found in researching the story, that the media used to cover a decade or two decades ago, but really has not in the last decade, I think pointedly, these are heartbreaking stories. You have individuals who have criminal records and deaths and worse ascribed to them, and they find themselves basically unemployable on the job market dealing with the massive administrative headaches that are probably, frankly, scary of potentially facing audits or having credit collectors come after them for the ill doings of someone else. And then the other point here is, in addition to the fact that you have those with Latino surnames and then their IDs are being used fraudulently, you also have children who are victimized by this. And the reason for that, in part, is because those are social security numbers that illegal aliens may fudge, that is, make up or be sold on the market, maybe social security numbers that have not yet been issued, or they're perceived as sort of clean social security numbers because children will have not had any real records associated with them, right. buying a house or student debt, etc. And so those are particularly attractive social security numbers for those engaged in fraud to sell and to obtain 
And so consequently, as we detail here, and as was put on focus in a congressional hearing about 10 years ago, which is really the last time this got any focus in Congress, we cite these instances of a three-year-old being issued a social security number already used for years by a twice-arrested illegal alien, which impacted the child's credit, medical, and work history. A nine-year-old denied Medicaid due to wages reported on a social security number. A 13-year-old denied as a dependent on her family's return for supposedly making too much money. As a parent, and like any parent, it would be shocking to think that your child would somehow be victimized and violated in this way, yet it's just one of the many knock-on effects of the magnet to illegal alien identification fraud that exists in this country because federal authorities have no desire to enforce the law on it, even though they have this list. They have this list of mismatched names, and they could be pursuing these individuals. Yeah, exactly. We've written some on this issue of child identity theft. Ron Mortensen, who's one of our fellows, a number of years ago had written about child identity theft. And again, I just think this is an issue that's politically a no-brainer for anybody who's interested in immigration security. Because if, especially for Hispanic American citizens, your kids are targets for these ID theft rings. And you can, you know, excuse and rationalize and explain away this identity theft. Well, you know, there's nothing, they're just, they have to do it because it's the only way they can work, whatever it is. But when kids are the targets, it just seems to me this is something, this is a message that's going to resonate with people. And, you know, frankly, shame on politicians for not articulating a clear, you know, non-sort of demagogic, but clear, informed message on this to shed some light on this problem. Yeah, and I think the, the facts are very clear here in terms of separating whatever politics might exist on this. Yes, federal lawmakers have focused on the boon to the tax rolls that this fraud has created. But federal authorities also, even though it's very hard to get this information, and most of it is somewhat stale, as we found out in reaching out to all of the various agencies who are implicated in what's going on with illegal alien ID fraud, the fact of the matter is that federal authorities have ascribed a high proportion of that earnings suspense file's growth from $190 billion to $1.9 trillion in the last 20 years to the illegal alien population, and federal authorities have found in their own investigations, that well over a million people are using social security numbers belonging to someone else. That was a million people, I think around 2015 to 2017. We're now five years onward from that. There's been a massive influx, obviously, during the Biden administration of illegal aliens into the country. So the numbers are only growing, and that means the number of victims are only growing. And one of the things that was remarkable in researching the piece, setting aside the fact that, again, we found that congressional offices, even among those who would be considered, quote unquote, hawks on immigration, were not really familiar with the growth of the ESF and this issue of illegal alien ID fraud, is that so few of the reforms can even get off the ground associated with combating this fraud in the employment system. The E-Verify system, which itself has many weaknesses, is something that only exists as a mandate in federal hiring. 
many states have not adopted E-Verify, even Texas itself, which right. is a huge illegal immigration problem, uh, has had trouble passing an E-Verify bill. And those in the House, for example, like Georgia Republican Buddy Carter has sought to pass legislation several times that would merely require the IRS to just put out a report on whether it might be able to use its proprietary information to identify illegal aliens fraudulently working in the U.S. Even just asking them to produce a report, that legislation has never passed. So there's huge intransigence on this issue, but it's something that I think were the American people aware of it, you know, more than a million people are potentially impacted via this fraud. That's a major issue. That's a major issue to the American public. I think it shocks the conscience. And these individual stories uh, are really heartbreaking. I think regardless of where you would be on the political spectrum, it's remarkable to think that you might be saddled with the horrible crimes of someone else who stole your ID. And the interesting thing is, you know, to get to sort of the solutions part, which you're alluding to, the IRS and the Social Security Administration know who a lot of these people are. It kind of reminds me of that scene in The Untouchables. Remember where Sean Connery told, what's his name, who was playing Elliot Ness? He says, everybody knows where the liquor is. The question is, does anybody have the will to do anything about it? Well, it's a similar thing here. The IRS and the Social Security Administration, they know the home addresses of hundreds of thousands of illegal aliens. And they not only will not cooperate with each other, they won't cooperate with Homeland Security. Like you said, there's resistance to even issuing reports about this information. So it seems to me this is one of those things, for instance, institutionalizing coordination between IRS and Social Security and DHS on identifying illegal alien workers seems to me the kind of thing that needs to be on a list of legislative priorities for a future Congress. And like you had mentioned, E-Verify, there is, under the Trump administration, there was even one of those many regulations that they issued but then never actually pulled the trigger on that those sort of colloquially known as G-Verify, which is basically just having the government do the E-Verify on its own for every new hire so the employer doesn't have to do anything because you have to submit your information about new hires to Social Security and IRS anyway, just for tax purposes. And this would have just had them do the verification themselves without putting any burden at all on the employer. These kind of basic things, it seems to me, have to be high up on any list of legislative priorities because without a tighter ID system, you can't control illegal immigration. You can't just wish the IDs will go away. In modern society, you have to have IDs to function. And if you're going to be serious about controlling immigration, you have to police the quality of your ID system. And we've been very unserious about this. And your piece really highlighted how unserious all our government agencies are about policing alien ID theft in general, but specifically illegal immigration related ID theft. And to extend your untouchables analogy, I'm not sure who the Kevin Costners are. And <laughs> among our, our, our government officials in the agencies and our legislators as well, to the Sean Connery question of what are you prepared to do, right. it doesn't appear to be much at this point. Because to your point, the federal authorities have this list. They obviously have enforcement powers. 
particularly with the IRS and then, of course, ICE, the DOJ, and beyond. They choose not to communicate, they being the IRS and Social Security Administration, with other federal law enforcement authorities. And there are claims that there would be privacy violations here. And that's basically the the best argument that they can make for putting up something of a Chinese wall with this information. Someone ought to test that out legally. And maybe there has been some litigation over it in the past, but I think that is certainly one of the major weaknesses in trying to combat this. But of course, there are legislative remedies that could be pursued here that would potentially allow you to avoid even having to engage in some kind of major information sharing between these authorities. And in fact, the IRS, which especially if it's going to have 87,000 new (laughs) agents, potentially, uh, might be able to put some of those resources towards this. And and that's one other thing that's worth noting here is that the IRS itself has been aware of and even flagged tens of thousands of these IDs and individuals who likely had their IDs stolen. But in our efforts to get correspondence from the IRS around, are you actively going out and notifying people that their IDs may be stolen? They're not. Even that, I think, just speaks to the lack of will here. And that's going to require both a legislative effort and probably also litigation as well to force the authorities to do their job. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems to me it really is going to need to have litigation and judicial rulings because otherwise you just end up with this policy ping pong, like you had suggested earlier with the no match letters, where the Bush administration started the no match process, Obama administration stopped it, Trump started it again. Biden has stopped it. And if there's a, say, a DeSantis administration, they'll probably start it again. But there needs to be some way to institutionalize that to make it less susceptible to this kind of uh, ping pong. And to continue the untouchables analogy, there's really no risk here. Nobody's going to come and shoot you in your house if you do, in fact, go after illegal alien identity theft. It's just a kind of ideological resistance rather than some kind of, I think, some kind of actual fear of consequences. Or, well, maybe the consequences might be that there's less illegal immigration. and Maybe that's serious enough that the actors here don't want to have that come about. So I appreciate, Ben, your time coming in again. Ben Weingarten has been speaking with us during this episode. He is co-author with Mark Hemingway of a piece from a little while back at Real Clear Investigations entitled Willful Blindness, Feds Ignore Illegal Alien ID Theft, Plaguing Americans as U.S. Coffers Fill. It's a longish piece, but it's definitely worth reading. I think we're going to have a link in the show notes, and hopefully we'll have some more writing and maybe some even legislative activity on this in the future. Ben, thanks for uh, coming in, and uh, good luck for your future work. Mark, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. And finally, I wanted to address something that Art Arthur wrote a blog post on this week and was in the news over the past couple of weeks, and that is the problem of people, migrants, dying at the border. The number of illegal aliens who've died on the border is something like double what it was a couple of years ago. In 2019, about 300 people were killed, uh, sometimes drowned, died of exposure, something like that, at the border. 2020 is 247. 
than last year was a record, 566 deaths, and so far this year, 609 migrants have died. And this report was from several weeks ago, so it may be a little higher now. And the anti-enforcement, anti-borders groups leapt on this and have said, look at how evil and cruel enforcement is, that kind of thing. But the fact is that as the flow of illegal immigrants increases, the number of people who tragically die increases. In other words, this is a function of our commitment to enforcement because there will always be some people who will take foolish risks and risks even for their children, regardless of what we do, in order to get into the United States. But it is on us to deter illegal crossings to the degree possible so as not to lure people here. The most recent news on this that really got people's attention was that in two separate incidents, two children drowned and an infant was in ICU and may not survive, again, because of a drowning. And this has been used as a kind of moral cudgel to argue against even the comically limited border enforcement that the Biden administration is engaged in. But in fact, what the Biden administration considers humanitarian non-enforcement is actually inhumane. It is encouraging people to take risks to get into the United States. Now, it is true that those people on the hard left and the libertarians who say this wouldn't happen if there were no border, if there were no border enforcement and anybody wanted to could just walk into the United States without any problems and immediately get legal status, essentially fully, truly open borders. Probably very little of this would happen because why would you try to wade across the river if you could just walk across the bridge? But of course, that is open borders, genuinely open borders, and the United States would not survive as we know it in open borders. Hundreds of millions of people would gladly move here, and the United States would, for all intents and purposes, cease to exist. Nobody except a handful of genuine hard left-wingers or ideological libertarians are for that. The alternative, of course, is consistent enforcement, where we send an unmixed message that you shouldn't cross. We're going to try to deter you from crossing. We're going to try to prevent you if you try to cross. We're going to deport you if you break immigration laws, which would send a message that you're welcome if you were following the rules, but otherwise we are going to keep you out. What we have under this administration is not really open borders. It's open-ish borders. We have a situation where the president and his minions are literally inviting illegal immigrants to try to enter the United States, but at the same time, not abandoning immigration enforcement altogether. So some people are, in fact, turned away under Title 42. That's a public health measure that was invoked during COVID, and it's still in place for political purposes, really. There's no good reason for it public health reason anymore, but the administration doesn't want to get rid of it because it's the little thin reed that it's holding on to that they can claim that they're still enforcing the border. But also when you get into the United States, 
if you're an illegal alien, sometimes you'll get work permits under this administration. It's actually quite inviting and the odds of success are pretty high, but not everybody gets that. So that there is still an incentive to try to get in and avoid border enforcement. So like I said, what we have here is not fully open borders, nor do we have a fully enforced border. What we have is open-ish borders, which is the worst of all possible arrangements because it entices people to try to get in illegally, but still keeps in place some obstacles that mean a lot of people still have to take risks to get into the United States, physical risks, legal risks. And the result is tragic deaths at the border. Like I said, some of these are going to happen no matter what, even with the tightest, best-run immigration system with enforcement inside the country and solid enforcement at the border. Some people are still going to take these kind of risks. But when they do that, it's on them. They're the ones who have the responsibility. They're adults, and uh, they're making these foolish decisions and have to pay the price. What we have today is a situation where the migrants themselves, again, are they have agency. They're deciding to do this. They're partly responsible for these tragedies. A woman, for instance, was bringing this infant who's in the hospital, carried it into the water to wade across the river. I mean, uh, she's responsible for that. But we share responsibility because we're not doing everything we can to send the message not to do this. And so until our policies at the border and in the interior, because you know deportations are way down too, until those policies change, the administration has to bear some of the responsibility for these 600-plus deaths at the southwestern border and counting that have taken place this fiscal year. And so the administration's supposedly humane policies are actually inhumane and resulting in unnecessary tragedies. This is Mark Krikorian for Parsing Immigration Policy. I hope you will join us next week. And in the meantime, give us uh, ratings, reviews, depending on what your podcast platform allows. And if you want to contact me directly, maybe Twitter would be the best way to do it at Mark S, as in Stephen, Mark S. Krikorian. And I encourage you to follow me there, too, if you have a taste for snark and sarcasm. I hope you'll tune in next week. Mm -hmm.